Good afternoon, everyone. First of all, let me say what an honor it is to have you on the show, Betsy. Everyone has a story, and we try to give a voice to those women whose story is meaningful, moving, and compelling. We share the story with the world so that in your shining, you give permission to others to shine as well. Listeners should tune in to Freeman Means Business on their favorite po uh, podcast channel, uh, some of which you'll find Freeman Means Business on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and others. Betsy, before we get, begin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Susan, for having me on the podcast today. This is a great opportunity for me. Uh, my background, briefly, I'm from New York City. I went to, to school, both college and law school at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I still live. Um, I spent a couple of years teaching between college and law school and also a, a pretty transformative year in, in southwestern France. And then uh, after I graduated from law school, I uh, practiced law for six years at Chode Hall and Stewart in Boston, and then left at a time when no one left their firms, uh, at least when they were on partner track, to start a new practice with my direct competitor at a firm called Edwards and Angel. We later became Edwards Angel, Palmer and Dodge, and I had a really glorious, glorious career of 25 years with them, building our practices together. My my uh, colleague there and I uh, built a national practice, transactional practice in media and communications industries. Wow. At the end of that period of time, after running into some, some personal crises that we'll probably talk about later, I withdrew from practice earlier than I had ever planned. Um, and not knowing exactly what I would do next, I found myself uh, advised by many of the people I had worked with in the diversity initiative at my old firm uh, to, to, to do exactly what I've been doing there in the last five years or so of practice as I wound down my, my, uh, my deal practice. And that was to advise and, and coach young lawyers um, among the, in the constituency that I supported as, as director of the diversity committee and head of the women's initiative, the women lawyers and the lawyers of color. And I had basically, by the end of the five years I was working on this kind of work, um, I had decided that law firms really had very little to offer in the way of capacity for change, which is, comes as no surprise to most people who understand right. the industry, of course. And certainly uh, very little to offer women and lawyers of color in the form of training or advancement. And that the best thing I could do would be not to invest in activities and conferences, even in special programs, but uh, to simply train them uh, to network, build relationships, build business and drive revenue, since that was going to be the only thing that mattered to anybody down the road anyway. So that's what I did in the last few years. And when I needed to leave practice, my close friend, the director of professional development said, what is wrong with you? Why don't you just get out of here and start a business being a business development coach? So that's, nice. I got to where I am now and that's what I do. And I love it. I have three children, ages 28, 23 and 20. Um, a husband I love very much and a very good life. That's amazing. Um, you know that I had the pleasure of reading your compelling LinkedIn story and honestly, knowing your LinkedIn profile, I thought it would your your article would be about your career in in law and in legal and such. But it was so moving. Um, I have to say, I don't know if 
the listeners are connected with you on LinkedIn, but if not, you should definitely connect with Betsy. She's incredible. She's quite the writer. Uh, what would you say is your proudest professional accomplishment? Well, that's being as old as I am and having several <laughs> professional experiences now, I, I look back and I see several, but the first great uh, sense of pride I had in my professional life was uh, having built my own uh, practice, really my own, uh, without being given any clients, without inheriting any clients, really, from, say, the age of uh, a second-year uh, associate up to wow. my, my sixth year, had re really built something portable, uh, clients who believed in me. This was much easier to do then when the financial products and um, other aspects of the world of commerce were far simpler than they are now. Um, but I was able to take that practice and move it to a different firm that was uh, at the time vastly more entrepreneurial, which was the reason for the jump, and, and develop a partnership with somebody my age. Um, and we built a practice of which I was very proud over the next um, many years. And it was enormously uh, satisfying to do that on my own and also to take a risk because being very risk averse, most lawyers are, I really had never taken a risk and leaving a firm where I was on partner track, that didn't happen in those days and jumping into a brand new place. That took more guts than I thought I had. So I was pretty pleased with myself for doing it. I'm but so impressed because you had youth, you had all these things that usually um, impact someone's level of confidence. You had youth, you were a woman. Uh, we know women don't act on things they should act on because they are not confident in doing so. So the courage it took and the chutzpah, if you will, I'm so impressed that you did that. Um, well, I, was pretty, I was pretty amazed because I didn't think of myself as having much courage. It was a long time before I thought I had courage, to be honest. I still thought that was an easy leap in the sense that I leapt into a world that was so friendly to me because my, I keep referring to him as my competitor. He was my best friend for years in my practice, along with my, my husband, with whom I also practiced when I was younger. And um, it was a happy place to be. So... Uh, there you know, I was nice. already in a happy place. So that, that was a great accomplishment. Building the practice in, at, to a national level was an enormous, gave me enormous sense of pleasure. But then there was an, an interim period where I, I struggled a great deal with um, personal illness and with uh, illnesses my parents had and went way off track. And when I came back into practice, also with three children, I just couldn't reset. And I, and I never really got back on my feet in, at the level of profitability or, uh, or even potential that made uh, my job as thrilling as it was before. And I was also pretty disenchanted. Um, you know, when you, when, you, when you direct a diversity mission for five years, you see, unfortunately, into the hearts and souls of your friends and partners. And, and sometimes you do not like what you see. And so I, I had powerful. That's very I had powerful. begun to really had it. So I, I was glad when I left um, to start this new venture that I that I referred to before, which was to create a business development business of my own. And Do you coach a particular type of client, or you know, is it coaching all lawyers? Opinion? All lawyers. I don't. You know, I I could branch out and co and coach consultants. I have accountants come to me and 
a few venture capital, uh, young associates and venture capital firms come to me, but I've just decided to keep it to my world because I miss my world. Yeah. And I miss lawyers and I'm quite happy to, that's where my, my talent is. That's where all my knowledge is. So I, and I, I, I coach students as well, which I really do that pro bono at my, at my uh, law school. And I really love doing that. That's uh, amazing. So that happens far too, um, across, across the country, far, far few, uh, too, too few law schools do that. that. That's amazing that you do that because I find even out here, I live near Stanford and they crave that sort of training while still in law school because they're, they're like deer in headlights when they get to the firm and then someday they're expected to engage in client. Um, right. And they, they aren't taught at the firm either. It's very, you know, they'll, you'll see a description of the program. We have 250 professional development programs, but actual true training in, in relationship building and in business skills, the sorts of things, business knowledge that they have to have to be grownups in, right. uh, in, in practice is just not provided. And the law schools do, do honestly a really terrible job on this front. My program is, is my program. I went to the Office of Career Services to Mark Weber, who is a friend of mine and uh, someone with real vision. And I said, Mark, I'll just do this pro bono instead of being simply a visiting advisor, which is what I was. I'm just going to do this. Is that okay with you? I'll train five women from the Women's Law Association every year. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send them into their large firm practices because that was the demo that Harvard has. Um, and I want them to be superstars in the first four or five months of practice. That's because incredible. Because that if does they are, if they aren't, you know, they'll, they'll leave. Yeah, that sets the tone for the rest of their career. Right. So that's pretty terrific. You know I'm all about women lifting women. So yes, you are. Yes, you yeah. are. That's How why you're here. Yeah, exactly. So I, I am so honored to know you and now call you friend. Um, I, I, I do want to get to your article on LinkedIn, but yes. but I would like to ask how would you advise other women to support women in legal within the law firm setting? Yeah, that's, I wish that that happened more. I think people ha are well-meaning. They want to support one another, but they are so under-supported themselves that reaching back to other women is not always politic. It is not always going to help them. And sometimes they are in need of help and their relationships with the male partners they're working with may be more important to them than anything else. My feeling is that the people who really need to be doing the heavy lifting are the, the women partners uh, and that they need to find ways to create sponsor, sponsorship opportunities for younger lawyers, women, lawyers of, lawyers of color, that it isn't just what they do individually. I believe they are the people who ought to drive uh, efforts at their law firms to create sponsorship programs. And that's something that Ida Abbott and some other people in, uh, in, in kind of our space are, are all about. And it is my belief that the only thing that will move the proverbial needle is sponsorship of the outsider. And by sponsorship, I mean people taking people into their practices, making them essential, and literally at comp time, moving dollars out of their columns and into the columns of these associates or young partners because, mm. they, because they were in fact central to the client relationship instead of hoarding yeah. credit, you know? And it's, but it's a, you know, it's a big effort. 
fundamentally. Now it's really a hard thing to do. It is. And I think, I think that women, um, and I, I hope that this doesn't offend anyone, but I've found in research shows that women lack confidence and are afraid to speak up and negotiate up front and, and make the case and state right. their position. So I think, like you said, the older women, more experienced women, the partners need to teach the younger women how to take that uh, behavior and implement it daily in order to advance themselves in the workplace. So. And they need they need to do that with with a deeper understanding of what's different about a woman's experience, which is why the sort of training that you do, uh, distinguishing the kinds of skill sets, interpersonal skill sets that women yeah. and men deploy, I think that I I think the partners need to understand that just as partners are are trained in unconscious bias, they should yeah. also be trained in actual communications differences, and so that they can advise the young people who work for them because you can't take an extremely introverted person and tell them, go ask that person to just show up and do this for you. You can't send them. And you, you might be able to send a guy in that way, but you cannot do that with a a woman. My example of this is when I teach networking and relationship building, I'll say, well, have you been in touch with your, your college classmates and your law school classmates? You've got to retain those relationships they can be uh, wonderful friends to you and wonderful professional connections for you both, hopefully. And I'll get, I'll get the statement. Well, I have this very good friend. She was, she was in my study group in law school and she's in-house at GE. And um, we have relationships at GE, but this would give me somebody who was my own relationship, but I, but I'm really afraid to call her. It'd be so exploitive. And I go, why? And he said, well, I haven't talked to her in 10 years. Now, I could say, well, just call her, you know, because a a guy would call if he was on the football team with the guy 20 years ago, he'd call and he'd say, hey, bro, I'd really like to meet so-and-so. Can you make the introduction? And the guy would say, yeah, sure, no problem. (laughs) But a woman, actually, if she calls this woman and says, hi, it's Betsy, Um, great, I hope, hope you're well, haven't talked to you in 10 years, and by the way, really like to meet your boss. Well, she's stepping up, but right. the, woman, the woman on the other side is, in fact, going to think it's exploitive. So it's, you know, unless that woman has come to her and said, let me see, what can I do for you? Which is what right. you ask what the women should do. The women should give people the opportunity to ask them for things. Right, right. That's a, a great because point. Otherwise, otherwise, they really are going to run afoul of the prejudices held not by themselves, not just by themselves and by the men, but by the women themselves. So yes. it's a problem. So part of what I try to do is um, I'm not naive enough to think I can change the world uh, right. <laughs> overnight. But I do believe that, you know, even in raising the in raising awareness of the different differences between how men and women communicate both verbally and non-verbally is meaningful because, uh, for example, one male that I was working with said to me, I never noticed any of that before, but now I'll be in a meeting and I'll recognize these behaviors and understand now where the thoughts and attitudes that I exactly. used to have exactly. came from. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's so important. And it's an area, lawyers are just not all that interpersonally skilled. Uh, and if you can get, if you can get them to, to just notice some things. Well, I think for you and me both, we understand that the key to success is listening before you take action and asking questions of what's important to the client 
And I think for men, for sure, it's very uncomfortable to ask questions for fear they expose ignorance. Mm-hmm. You know, and no one else sees it that way, but they do. Learning what to your, um, I wanted to ask you about your challenges or setbacks because you've, you've had so many successes, but I know that that comes with some challenges and setbacks. Yeah. Um, well, I would think, you know, I have had kind of a perfect storm of medical issues within my family and for myself over the past, I'd say, uh, well, for quite some time. And, uh, when I was, I, th- I think I was about 40 or so, um, and I had one child, hadn't uh, had the second or third yet, I um, I developed a, a very uh, severe case over time because it was left undiagnosed of bipolar disorder, and the bipolar two to be specific, which is the one that can leave its victims super high functioning, which I was. And nobody had any idea I was sick, uh, particularly myself. They just thought I was a little, um, you know, a little hyper. But yes. I, was, I was funny and I was entertaining. Um, and bipolar people can be just maddeningly charming, even when they're being irritatingly loud and difficult. Uh, and I was charming. And if anything, my business development uh, capacity my interpersonal skills were at their absolute highest in some respects during my sickest years. Wow. Um, You know, and most people that doesn't happen. My doctor, the doctor who finally diagnosed me properly and saved my life said, I have no idea why you still have your job or your family. So it was not fun at all. It is, it is an irony that during that period of time, I uh, continued to grow the business I had already created and, not to fail, in fact, during that period of time. However, it went undiagnosed because that was a period when doctors were just figuring out that a lot of talk therapy was unnecessary if medication could be accessed, and they were medicating everything they saw with the samples that had been dropped off the day sure. before of Prozac and Zoloft and things like that, and that's, yeah. for, that's unipolar disease. Uh, those drugs make manic depressives, bipolar uh, uh, people, very manic. Um, and then when they come back into the therapist, they seem better. Um, that's ah. a, you know, a lousy therapist. So this was an era when people went to psychiatrists for drugs instead of psychopharmacologists. When I finally uh, had been sick for 10 years and a great deal of damage done, uh, a, a close friend, a true angel who's no longer with me, um, diagnosed me and sent me to the right doctor who said, I just don't know why you're even alive. Wow. Um, and he saved me. And by this time, I had three children, um, a very unhappy husband, um, a career that was still going great guns, but uh, some deteriorating relationships with my partners. So I was very lucky that it was caught, uh, and I recovered over the next few years. It always takes a while to recover and you know really get to a place of stability. But I had lost my career in the sense that it never, it never meant the same thing to me. And uh, again, and I didn't have the drive to do it again. And I think what had happened is I had sort of seen the other side and um, I just, I just couldn't tolerate big law anymore. Um, and the diversity you know, work. I have to say I, there are women who are going to hear this and they're struggling with the same struggles and, or, and men as well, men as well. Yeah. They're, they are hiding, they're keeping the secret, they're secret keepers, they're keeping that secret because yes. 
you know, law is such a stressful, stressful life to live and you don't leave it at the office either. So you're telling your story and the courage to share what happened to you might save a life. I, or it might help somebody understand that they have to get some help um, when they start perceiving um, erratic moods. Um, you know, I was, I went to see my gynecologist and obstetrician. He told me I was paramenopausal. We had a hard chat a few years later. And I I'll said, bet. don't let balkanization of medical uh, specialties create problems like this. Send the next person who says that to you off to a psycho farm to be sure she isn't sick. But within the law firm, it's incredibly stigmatized mental illness. Yes. I think it's more stigmatized. Sti this kind of mental illness is more stigmatized even than alcoholism. Oh, I agree. You know? so, I agree. It's um, almost, yeah. It, it, I had to share it though. I had to tell my managing partner and my colleagues because I had to protect my income. I had to protect myself and my compensation going down the, the line because I had been sick for a while and out of practice and I couldn't afford not to tell them what had happened. But in a better world, it would have been caught. People in HR would have been more alert to it, and I would not have suffered from two bouts of malpractice. But the point of all this is my firm was great to me. Meanwhile, my mother was dying of Alzheimer's. My father died 14 months afterwards. You know, it was, this happens to a lot of people in midlife. A lot of things happen. Parents die within 14 months of, of one another. Your friends start to die when you're about 45 or 50. The world gets really, really ugly really fast, and you have to pivot and deal with it. And I did, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't engage in the same way again. And um, my children were small, and they mattered more. Uh, yes. but, I, but I still wanted my work. And so I was really floundering. And as a lawyer and a female, who had always appeared to be totally self-confident. I always had that imposter syndrome thing going on, which told me that I couldn't do anything except be a lawyer. So that was always in my mind. Then I had to leave the law and I was sitting there wondering what to do. And it was suggested to me that I should just do what I'd been doing in the diversity context, which was train uh, young lawyers at the time to learn how to build business. So I jumped out of my, my law firm and immediately started my own uh, consulting business and spent the next year or two doing the things I always envied my clients for being able to do, which was start a business and brand it and have a logo. I called it Elizabeth Manella and Associates, which was wow. grander that somehow I might have associates one day, which would never work for me. I'm too... I just couldn't stand it. I, it has to be just me. I want a solo you know, career right now. But the geniuses at the Genius Bar at, um, at the Apple Store built my website for me. So I, I considered them to be my associates. That nice. nice. I like that, actually. So I, too, um, use the, the word we, um, although I do have one person who helps me. Um, but I think it, you're more welcome in the world, yes. the client world, when you have associates or we. Uh, your yes. story is, is fascinating. I, I really, 
Um, I want to give us extra time so that we're sure to talk about the very compelling LinkedIn article that you wrote. I keep, I keep leaving that behind. I, that's one. That's the other. It's that's so the amazing. Big, big yeah. elephant in the room. Well, I, I don't want to give it away because I want people to read it, and I'll oh. I'll put a link to it in your um, in the blog where we put this podcast. But if you'd like to speak to it, oh, yeah. I want to yeah. say it's a love story. Yes. Yes. It is a love story. It is. It's a. My husband uh, first got cancer in 2010 uh, when we had uh, children. The our, our youngest was 12, and um, the first diagnosis was terminal, um, which is why you always get a second opinion. But he ended up with stage three, and it was really kind of uh, a scary period, um, and he survived. Uh, but got his be body beaten to hell in the process. And then he had uh, a recurrence two years later. And since then, knock on wood, he has been cancer free. But in the last few years, he had a bunch of uh, issues developed that hospitalized him and put him in rehab uh, countless times in, in what is essentially phase three of the, of the uh, cancer victim's life, which is the uh, late onset of all the horrible side effects that can come from chemotherapy and radiation. Oh, I got you. That's, that's the period that my article talks about. Yeah. Uh, and, and a period in, in which uh, my role, uh, which had always been pretty vigorous, was more important uh, than it had ever been because we weren't dealing with simple things like, let's go in and cut that out or let's give him six months of chemo. This was much more complex. This was, this was what the hell is going on? And why is his sodium dropping? And how come he thinks he's on the, a major league basketball team? Uh -huh. how, how come he doesn't know who he is? And, and, and why is his pain in his hip so bad? And you know, all these things that required us to be thinking and watching and doing and protecting him. And ultimately, what, what came of it years later is this article in which I kind of, like many people who write about these kinds of things, it was transformative for me to write about what happened and, and send the message to people out there who are experiencing this kind of thing. And there's so many ways to experience this kind of dilemma that being an advocate is as important to loving uh, the patient uh, that the, the love you give is, of course, huge medicine, but your advocacy can save a life. And certainly it can make the, the, the person you love uh, more comfortable and safer and more likely to recover, if not fully, uh, to his best possible present. Uh, and this is about my life living in the hospital with him whenever he was there because I didn't feel that he was safe at night, not because anybody was incompetent, but because the things that go on when no one's in the room can be scary. And spending 12 hours a day with him when he was in rehab because at that point he was, uh, had been affected by the anesthesia and the painkillers and the damages caused by radiation to his brain. And as part of his recovery, he had to climb back into himself and we didn't know if we'd get him back. And I had, I needed to be there all the time because it was the only thing anyone told me I might be able to do, which was to keep him oriented um, 
And that's a, you know, that's a book in itself. You know, I have to interrupt and say that from knowing just a little bit about your story, um, it seems that life or the universe or whatever you want to call it, just took and took and took from you. And yet you still had something to give when it came time, you know, with your best friend, your husband, your soulmate, this person in the hospital, you still had something left to give. And it's just incredible. Um, we ask ourselves, what would have happened and what therapy would he have accepted? Because he took it the most. He said, give me all you have because he's surviving for his children. Oh. Now, had we, if we didn't have these three girls. We don't know what choice of treatment he would have made. And we don't know what would have happened. Uh, but you don't, in a situation like this, ever give up on the person you love but even if you thought about that because you were just beaten, you would never give up uh, for your children because they are the toll on them. Yes. So terrible. And you can't live with that. Yeah. And I don't see this as, as I said to you offline, I don't see this as altruism. When my children are, are unwell or, or sad or worse, it brings me to my knees. I can't stand it. So you're an amazing wife and mother. Um, but all mothers feel that way. I think they do. That's I do. why women I are so great at this. Yeah, I call my son the reason for my breathing. Of um, course, of yes. course he yes. is. And that is what ultimately drives you. But the other thing that drives you, which we also talked about offline, and which is one of the primary messages, it really is the message. It's not an article about, about doing, doing the right thing for your kids. It would, what drove me uh, to be good at this was realizing I was good at it. it w I had lost my career to a certain extent uh, in, in the form of uh, you know, being a practicing lawyer. It was only a year after I, or six months after I retired that the first cancer happened. But I found that my effectiveness, the self-confidence I had, the thinking, the, the the strategic capacity I had, the fact that I was unafraid of uh, the terminology and the uh, you know concepts that had to be grasped to to follow what the doctors were doing because it isn't that difficult to follow it on a on a surface level. Um, the fact that I could do all of that uh, meant that I was really really good at helping him out. That I was making a difference. I was catching things they missed. I was telling wow. them his entire his entire medical history, because none of them have time to figure it out. And they come in and they ask him. He has no idea. Yes, you know? of course. He feels, he feels I, like, well, and he isn't sure whether he's still playing for that basketball team. You know, <laughs> so I had to be doing that. And I felt so good about it. You know, when something went right because of me, when the people on the floor fell in love with my husband, because he was the one they loved the most, because I made that community connect. Yes. And they knew I cared about them, which I did, because I fell in love with every community I stepped into. And it is my instinct to do that. I felt really good about myself for doing that. So just as I really loved my career and felt proud of my accomplishments as a lawyer, and particularly in building a, a large and profitable practice, I felt immensely proud of what I was contributing to my husband's future and well-being. And it's hard to explain that, but that made me better at it because it self-esteem drives so much. Creativity, curiosity, things like that. 
self-esteem is critical to all of our success. Without it, we fall apart. Right. So, you, you uh, that's speak, the message that I gave in the article is. Yes. And you speak about, um, you know, love of self first so that you can then be there for others. Well, the right. example of the oxygen mask dropping, you have to serve yourself first. Yeah. A line from your article that I love so much that could apply to um, everyone's career, but my knowing that it applied to your role as patient advocate makes it so much more meaningful is take pleasure every day, all day in doing the job better and being braver and tougher than you ever thought possible. That, yeah. that advice can be given to, you know, young associates, women in law, people in business. Right. Um, and then you were talking about your role as the patient advocate to your husband. It was just such a moving, it, it is just such a moving article. I'm so glad that you shared it. It really made me connect with you because I'm 52 and I'm going through some of the same things that you mm -hmm. went through. Mm -hmm. And it just made me feel like I'm not alone. No, and there's so many, and I'm getting comments and calls and emails. I never expected this. I saw from, that. It's crazy great. People who have been advocates for their children, thats that really gets to me, you know, because I can't think of anything worse than that yeah. having to do. But, um, you know, it's all in the perspective you have. Um, my children are, are, are well, and they're struggling with this still. But I've got to... Sure. And, you know, there's people who go through far worse. And it's it's really all about, I mean, you and I, again, we were talking about how it's about finding pleasure in every day and finding a sense of success. Excelling well, you seem to day. live in gratitude. And I think living in gratitude gets, it's a quite, quite a coping skill. It gets us through some of the hardest times. And you lead by example for your daughters. And I think that your writing, and I know I journal, it, it, it's very oh. cathartic. So cathartic. Yeah, it is. It is. So tell me a surprising fact about you. Okay. Well, I told you to ask this question for sure, not to miss it on your list of possible questions. Um, I had, th there's many surprising things about me because I've been around for so long and because I was crazy for so long. So there's a lot of good stuff that happened then. That's <laughs> really pretty damn funny. But um, I, had, I had my third child when I was 46. And wow. that always creates a sharp intake in breath, usually on the part of the, the women. Yes. Um, when I went to um, my reunion, my was my 20 something reunion, maybe my 25th, I was nursing this baby. And um, people were just, they just could not believe it. And my friend, Jimmy, I remember he said, Bets, Bets, we've, we've got to get you an award for oldest nursing mother in the class <laughs> and it has to be classmates no trophy brides so anyway it was one of my one of my favorite moments of my nursing i love it i love it so i have to say um i have a very good friend who uh, I, I met in hawaii but we have lots of connections across the country her son lives in austin and his wife um was nursing their child out in public and mm -hmm. a man told her, you ought to cover up. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. So she took the baby diaper and the diaper cloth and put it over her own face. 
<laughs> and continued to nurse. Awesome. And oh, I have I like to tell you, the picture went viral. It's in China. It's in Germany. Oh, really? Oh, you have to send it to me. Story. It, it's on, uh, I think it was on uh, one of the major networks. And I have to find it. I will send it to you. It you was fantastic. That's pretty yeah. classic. Yeah, I was out and about quite a lot. But in Cambridge, I love it. In Cambridge you can do anything you want, you know. Yeah. Yeah, when I, I worked at State Street, I, I worked, no, go ahead, sorry. I worked at State Street in Boston, and I was pretty delighted to see um, that they offered a nursing station. So that was forward thinking back then, very progressive. Yes, oh, very wow. progressive. Well, I, I will say that at my law firm, they really tried hard to accommodate me. I was a little bit on the eclectic end of the spectrum. So I demanded locks be put on and this and that, and I would have conference calls using those those double pumps and stuff. And <laughs> I was over the top at this point. But I will never forget uh, when we got to the point where I nursed her as long as I could. I knew she was the last one, at least one would assume. And uh, so I was expressing milk. And I would wander into the the lawyers, you know, not the lawyers, everybody's cafe, little cafe where you could make coffee and had a refrigerator to put your stuff in. Right. And they bring in the expressed milk to put in the refrigerator <laughs> and then happily stand over the sink washing out all the equipment. And That's <laughs> it, so funny. I hope no one used it for their coffee. No, they didn't <laughs> use it, but they were... They ran out fast. It was just well. One last question: If people yes. want to know more about you, um, where on social media and in real life can they reach you? Well, I am everywhere on social media. I learned early on that that was a great way to meet people and to skip ahead because I to get to know everybody. So I'm very active on LinkedIn, um, and I'm easy to find because I'm at Betsy Monell. If you remember how to spell my name with two N's and two L's, you're all set. Or you can simply Google me because I have an unusual name and I write a lot of things and I comment on a lot of things and Google picks it all up. So I pretty much own the real estate of maybe two pages worth of Google search under my name. Great. Easy Great. to find. And I live in Cambridge and coach in Boston and Cambridge and always want to learn more from people. I can't imagine. You yeah. have to come. It's time. I absolutely will. I love it out there. I have friends and family good. out there. I lived there for 12 years. My heart is still there. Good, good. Well, we're waiting. So I will meet you for a cup of coffee and awesome. have some laughs. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Susan, so I much. Enjoyed I really it. enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.